Welcome to Open Minds from Creative Commons. I'm Oni Anukim, CC's Campaigns Manager. We're celebrating Creative Commons' 20th anniversary this year, and one of the ways we're doing that is with this podcast, a series of conversations with people working on issues we're involved with and subjects we're excited about. We're just 10 days away from the 2021 CC Global Summit taking place virtually from September the 20th to the 24th. We have a robust program for you filled with over 150 sessions, 285 speakers and countless opportunities for networking and making meaningful connections. Join us from wherever you are as we take stock of the latest developments in the open movement, celebrate 20 years of Creative Commons and explore better sharing and the future of open. You can find the registration link in the episode description. To get you as excited as we are for this year's summit, in this episode, we'll be taking a short tour around the globe and speaking to three of our keynote speakers. First stop, Nairobi, Kenya, where we'll be talking to Angela Odur-Lungati. Angela is the executive director of Ushahidi, a global nonprofit technology company that builds tools for democratizing information, increasing transparency, and lowering barriers for individuals to raise their voices. So my name is Angela Odur-Lungati. Um, I'm a technologist, community builder, and open source uh, software advocate who's very passionate about building and using appropriate technology tools to impact the lives of marginalized groups. I am also the ED, or the executive director of Ushahidi, which is a global nonprofit tech company that helps communities to quickly collect and share information that enables them to raise voices, inform decisions, and influence change. We build open source tools that have been used in over 160 countries in the last 13 years, gathering 50 million reports to advance democracy, report incidents, mobilize for crisis response, simplify research, encourage activism, address challenges, influence change and improve society. So there's a bunch of different examples that I could share really quickly. Um, for example, the Haiti earthquake in 20, that was 2000, yeah, 2010. Um, there's the Nepal earthquake uh, recently, um, also been used for COVID-19 response. So there's many, many examples of where our tools have been used in the fight for social justice. Amazing. Thank you so much. Ushahidi does some fantastic work. And I'd love if you could tell us the meaning of the word Ushahidi. Yeah, so Ushahidi is a Swahili word that means testimony. Um, it's, you know, we're actually born out of the post-election violence that broke out in Kenya back in 2007, 2008. So for those who don't know, um, at that time, our elections were marked by, you know, the, it, it was marked by very high tribal tensions. And so, of course, when results were announced, um, violence broke out in different parts of the country. And um, the mainstream media was unable to report exactly what was happening in those different pockets. Um, The government was also trying to downplay how severe the situation was. Um, And many of us were stuck in our houses, um, not knowing what was happening. And so what the founders did was then come up with or rather develop a platform that would allow ordinary citizens to send in text messages, emails, or tweets and have that visualized on a map, essentially giving them a voice where no one else could or would. So that's where the name comes from. It was really bearing witness to what was happening to Kenya at that time um, from the eyes and from people's lived experiences. You've been executive director of Ushahidi since mid-late 2019, I believe. And it's fair to say that the world has changed leaps and bounds since you know the end of 2019 when the pandemic began um what would you say are the biggest lessons you've learned in a new leadership position navigating the waters of COVID-19 very interesting question um I think one of the biggest ones is that you have to prepare for the unexpected that you should never get comfortable with where you're at and be willing and ready to adapt to the change and very quickly. COVID literally and figuratively pulled the rug from all of our feet. Um, And for us at Ushahidi, we had to adapt very fast. We made decisions to, you know, we made a decision to waive our platform fees, which 
as risky as it was, ended up paying off in different ways because we've seen a huge surge in use of our platform by vulnerable communities during this time. Um, and that's also led to discoveries on how to shift our general and product strategy. For example, we've been able to detect a need to provide more support than just providing the software in itself um, and guidance, which led us to pilot a web monetization feature with support from Grant for the Web to inject small amounts of money to our users directly from within their Ushahidi instances. We've also introduced um, USSD as a data source to make it easier and cheaper to report into the Ushahidi platform. And has, uh, as time has gone by, you know, with everything like the, you know, we've seen the Myanmar uh, coup, um, all the, the NSARS protests in Nigeria, things like Black Lives Matter. There's also a need, you know, overwhelming need to also provide secure ways of being able to share information. And so those are also some of the other things that we were thinking about in terms of our product strategy, which wouldn't have happened if, you know, we didn't see this surge of use of the platform. So mm -hmm. that would be one. Um, I think the second lesson is that physical interaction is underrated, severely underrated. Yes, we've been put in a situation um, that has forced us to maintain distance and technology has made it easier for us to adapt to that current situation. Still, it's also shown us how difficult it can be to form connections in a virtual setting and also shown how meaningful those connections are in achieving our goals. For example, for me, fundraising, um, trying to do that in a virtual setting while not being able to meet people has been um, a bit, you know, fairly difficult. Um, but at the same time, it's not to say that we can't do it or haven't been doing it. I mean, we've had to go ahead and do it. It just means that I've had to put in a lot more effort to form those bonds while not being able to physically interact with people. And moving on to some questions about open source, I'm interested to know what do you see as the biggest opportunities for the open source community in Kenya and globally in the near term and the long term? I mean, in the near term, the one thing that comes to mind is vaccine inequity. That's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now. Uh, for us in Kenya, there's still substantial information gaps regarding where to access the vaccines, people's perceptions and the effects. And I believe that open systems and open source can facilitate information sharing to shed light on this problem. Now, thinking into the long term, COVID may have introduced barriers for physical interaction geographically, but it's mm -hmm. also opened our eyes to the possibility of cross-border interaction via the internet. With more remote work opportunities available, organizations worldwide are seeking talent at a global scale, which means you can live in Kenya, but work for a company that has its roots somewhere else, somewhere completely different on another continent. So I think that open source communities should latch onto this opportunity to expand their reach into unexplored regions or markets, because there's so much more knowledge to be shared across different cultures, skill sets, etc. And you've been working in the open source community now for many years. How were you first introduced to open source? And what tips do you have for folks who are curious about working in open source but don't know where to start? Yeah, another interesting question. So um, it was probably my undergrad studies, um, both in the classroom, or rather the, the classroom was the first instance, you know, I mean, it was part of the part of the curriculum, just understanding um, what open source is. But then my exposure to actually being involved in it was actually during my time volunteering with Ushahidi. Um, that started around uh, 2010, when I volunteered with them for the constitutional referendum uh, project, and I was hooked from then. Um, in terms of tips uh, for people who are curious and don't know where to start, I think one of the first ones is recognizing that you don't have to be a coder to participate in open source projects. There's plenty of other parts of the projects that need help, could be documentation, it could be translation, so many more. You just need to identify the skill set that you would like to share or the area of growth that you want to explore. Because most of the time, yes, there's something that you're able to give, but then there's also an element of the, these things that you want to learn. Just be very clear and identify what that is. Second thing would be start small and 
you know, make progress with time, you'll need to familiarize yourself with how open source generally works and how different communities work as well, because no open source community is the same. Each one of them have their own um, intricacies and unique uniqueness. Um, so you'll need to be able to understand how, what those differences are, what the similarities are, before you can then move on to more complex projects. On the third one, the, the, and probably one of the most important ones, immerse yourself in the community of the project that you're getting involved in. Attend those meetups, jump onto the Slack channels, the forums, the mailing list, and the discussions. Just you know, really put yourself in there and don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Awesome. And it's incredible to see, you know, you started as a volunteer at Ushahidi and, and now today mm-hmm. you're Um, executive director that's a testament to the work that you've contributed to the organization and the wider open source communities it's 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 I never saw that happening (laughs) but it it definitely is when I sit down and reflect about my my journey into the organization it's it's definitely one for the books and switching gears slightly over the years you've spoken very passionately about closing the gender gap in tech across mm-hmm. africa during your time in the sector what changes have you observed and what do you hope to see in the future you can't deny that there's been so much more you know there's been a lot of progress uh, mm-hmm. on this front not just in africa but globally there's an exponential growth in the number of training and mentorship programs targeting women in tech um, or other marginalized groups. And we we seem to be covering the technical skill development gap well. However, in my opinion, there's still a challenge when it comes to the retention of this tech talent, in you know, especially for, for women um, and growth into leadership opportunities. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done to create conducive environments that are welcoming and inviting. And I'd like to see more attention and work done on this. Digging a bit deeper in there, what are some of the things that could be done to improve retention um, for women and other marginalized groups? Well, this is something that actually kind of um, really crosses. It's, It's part of the same problem that we experience even in open source communities and it really just revolves around conduct you know creating codes of conduct like what what are the what are the kinds of behaviors that we accept which uh, which ones do we not accept because we know there's a lot around harassment against uh, women and marginalized groups um there's a lack of pay equity as well um you know when it comes to work life balance are you know what, what types of policies are being put in place um to to also make it very clear that the environments that we're working working in are inviting and welcoming to diverse and you know diverse thoughts and diverse skill sets. So those would be my three my three areas. Looking at um, harassment um, and how to you know basically how to work around that. Um, two, pay equity um, and just being more open to diverse and you know paying more attention to diversity and inclusion. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for Angela's keynote at Summit. Folks, make sure you're registered so you don't miss it. Next up on our world tour, we head to Bangalore, India, where you'll be hearing from Achal Prabala. Achal is a Shuttleworth Fellow and coordinator of Access IBSA, a project set up to expand access and speed up the discovery of new drugs in India, Brazil and South Africa. I'm Achal Prabhala, and I uh, coordinate the Access IPSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. I've been working as an activist for access to medicines now, uh, coming on 20 years. Um, in between, uh, for a brief while, I also worked on access to knowledge and uh, concentrated more on copyright and the kind of work that uh, Creative Commons is more closely aligned with. But for the large part, I've worked on access to medicines, uh, especially for life-threatening conditions like HIV and AIDS, hepatitis C, cancers, um, cystic fibrosis. And in the last two years, uh, in the last year and a half since the pandemic came upon us, I've worked nonstop, almost continuously on access to vaccines. That's an incredible journey and important work. And I'm keen to expand on how you got started a little later in the conversation. But I really want to dive into the Access IBSA project. And so 
the project was founded on a vision of reforming the intellectual property framework in medicine in order to, you know, increase innovation and save more lives. And you've been fighting for vaccine equity long before the COVID-19 pandemic, although I'm sure that has, you know, multiplied in by, you know, infinity and um, for the past two years. Since the start of 2020, late 2019, what do you think are the biggest changes you've observed on this front in terms of, you know, the interest in the vaccine itself and vaccine equity, both in positive ways and ways that folks should be paying attention to? The simplest way I can describe what changed when the pandemic began, and especially after vaccines were developed, is that I've been working on this for so long, Oni, and I feel that uh, my own parents, who love me, live very close by, five minutes away, didn't fully understand what I did until the pandemic came about. Meaning, I think that the issues I worked with uh, at one level were very simple, getting people access to the life-saving medicines they needed. That's very simple and understandable, but the how of it uh, and the problems on pharmaceutical monopolies associated with it were very difficult, I think, for people to fully grasp. Uh, they were shrouded in this technical dialogue, of, uh, trade law and intellectual property and economics. And it, it was just something very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. And it was also happening with different diseases around the world. And so where I saw connections and where I had actually worked on several of these campaigns, no one else saw those connections. I mean, no one uh, ordinarily uh, would suspect that uh, a crisis with access to hepatitis C medicines in Brazil in 2013 has anything to do with uh, the debilitating lack of affordability of HIV medicines in uh, Southern Africa in 2000. But they were all coming from the same root problem and I think actually one of the failures of work like mine and other activists has been not to be able to communicate that popularly. Um, tragically, what changed in the pandemic is that everyone around the world had a sort of universal investment in getting a vaccine and understanding why they weren't getting a vaccine if they lived in countries like mine or worse. And that meant for better or worse that people suddenly began to take a very personal interest in these arcane issues. And what I've seen over the last one and a half years that I've been working on this is that I have to explain less and less. It used to be, even at the start of the pandemic, when we started looking at vaccine monopolies prior to there being even vaccines in the world, uh, trying to forestall what we saw as an, as an inevitable problem, um, I'd have to start right at the beginning. I'd have to go back to South Africa in 1999, my own work in that country in 2002, to build that story up from scratch in order to be able to put what was happening in the present day in context. And I find that I have to do that less and less, uh, almost to the extent now that the phrase vaccine apartheid or the phrase vaccine inequity is universally understood. People get it instantly. People get the implications of it. And I think that's that's really positive, though it hasn't actually resulted in any gains, particularly in the pandemic. I think that perhaps for the very first time uh, in the last six months, the pharmaceutical industry is on the back foot and has to constantly justify the monopoly positions it's taken on these vaccines, which it's refusing to budge on, um, but still has to justify them, which is, I think, a huge change from what it used to be like before. And you touched on these monopolies. I recently read an article that you co-wrote with Chelsea Clinton in The Guardian about how monopolies on COVID vaccines are killing people in poorer countries as, you know, they are controlling who can make them and restricting this severely. Could you expand on this more and, and, and share any thoughts you have on solutions for this so you know we can see that the interest in vaccines has you know sprouted tremendously during the pandemic and um 
you know, both to a positive effect and, and now in terms of monopolies, we're seeing some of that negative, um, you know, capitalist interest coming in there. I wonder what the solutions are. One of the uh, hardest things uh, to navigate through this pandemic for me personally has been the personal effect of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I lived through India in April and May. I, I've lived through India right through the last 18 months because obviously no country will take me. I can't actually travel anywhere. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to be here with my family. But April and May and June of this year were the most excruciating three months I might have ever lived. Uh, the number of people who died that I knew, that I loved, who, whose notices of death I received every day on WhatsApp was just unbearable. It, it was simply unbearable. And having lived through that, I, I, it struck me, I think everybody grieves, of course, when you lose a loved mm. one, but I work on these issues and I was working on these issues as I was grieving for loved ones. And I did really think that it was something I'd never been in before because I've always been fighting on behalf of other people or with other people. I've never actually fought for uh, access to a life-saving vaccine that threatened my loved ones. And mm -hmm. it did really put me in a, in a peculiarly enraged position. When uh, the pandemic rolled on, you know, June eventually became July and July became August and things became better. Uh, a close friend of mine, uh, someone who I have worked with and known for several years now, his name is Marumo Nkomo. Um, Marumo is one of the, uh, one of the uh, few, uh, uh, upright, hardworking, incredibly dedicated South African bureaucrats, of whom there are far more in South Africa, I should say, than in India, where our bureaucracy has been significantly more corrupted, um, was battling a personal condition of his own, which is that his father, who is a, a giant in public health and in South African public life, had been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, he received his first dose of a Pfizer vaccine uh, in the middle of June, contracted COVID towards the end of June and died by the 10th of July. And at this exact time, Marumo was in Geneva as the South African trade representative to the World Trade Organization, where he, along with uh, his equally dedicated and brilliant boss, uh, Kolelwa Numbi Peter, who is the head of the South African mission to Geneva, was fighting for a, a waiver of pharmaceutical monopolies at the World Trade Organization. And this is a global waiver they were fighting for. So they were fighting, the two of them, on behalf of 75% uh, uh, of humanity. He had to take a break uh, in that fight, in a fight in which they would have meetings with ambassadors of the United Kingdom where, uh, uh, in the meeting, uh, the people they were talking to would grimace at their suggestions, uh, sometimes openly mock their ideas uh, and what they wanted, and then take other calls uh, while in wow. what was supposed to be a serious bilateral meeting to resolve one of the most pressing issues on earth. He had to take a leave of absence, fly back to Johannesburg to try to see his ailing father before he died, only to land 10 minutes after he died. Oh. And um, I wanted to tell that story. We were very keen, Chelsea and I, to tell that story because it exemplifies, I think, the kind of uh, deeply personal mm -hmm. loss that many of the people who are asking for a new system to create enough vaccines for us are experiencing. Um, it's not a joke. It's not uh, something that's happening to someone else. It's actually happening to the very people who are fighting for vaccine access. And I think that, you know, we could go through any number of technical arguments, which actually both of us um, have done before and I've done before. And it's hard in a way to reach people as well as a heartbreaking personal story like this does and unfortunately mm -hmm. I think that we needed to tell a story like this in order to uh, bring this home. I, I'm i so grateful that the South Africans are fighting for this on behalf of all of us because of the fact that what they're asking for a waiver on monopolies is the first step in creating better vaccine access. Uh, vaccines are protected by a layer of different monopolies, and one of those are patents, which uh, Kolelwa and Marumo are fighting to uh, 
uh, wave temporarily at the mm -hmm. World Trade Organization. The other monopolies come in the form of technology. And so the actual vaccine technology is a trade secret that companies could easily share if they wish to, but don't at all share with incredibly few exceptions. I got the AstraZeneca vaccine in India. That's one of the few companies that actually has deigned to share its technology mm -hmm. with one company in India, a country which has uh, you know, between 40 and 50 competent vaccine manufacturers, uh, nevertheless, has actually done so, unlike any other Western pharmaceutical company with a viable vaccine. And the second step in the solution to vaccine access is to get companies to share their technology with as many competent manufacturers across the world, uh, literally across the world, from Brazil and Turkey to Indonesia and India and uh, Egypt uh, and South Africa and Ghana, where there have been calls by competent manufacturers to say, look, we'd like to do something to save ourselves. We don't actually want charity. This is mm -hmm. not something that you need to buy for us. All you need to do is to give us the technology at a reasonable licensing royalty rate, which we'll even actually pay for uh, in order for us to be able to live. Um, this hasn't happened, however, and this is what we're fighting for. Well, first off, I just want to say that I'm so sorry for your personal losses. It, you know, it was very heartbreaking to see things unfold in India at the height and at the peak of um, the pandemic and, you know, incidences there. Um, and I, I want to thank you and others who are doing this work to, um, you know, drive awareness and to really bring about the change that we need in order to have... Um, you know, vaccine equity, it, it's so important. And um, you, you touched on a lot of heartstrings there. Um, this pandemic has been personal for so many people. I mean, I, I've had personal losses myself um, with loved ones. And, you know, it's real for the first time in my life, really, it's been uh, like a, a, the biggest kind of health threat that, uh, you know, I, I've seen and 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 seen loved ones affected by. It's not been a an us and them thing. It's been a everyone's been involved in this. Everyone has been affected by this. And and um, it, you know, in terms of driving to a, a better, brighter future, um, we we really do need to get collaborative in in terms of creating those solutions and you know self-interest and um raw capitalism just won't really see us to where we need to be um you know so that those are just my reflections there thank you for them and i'm sorry for your losses as well very very much Thank you. Thank you. Um, just switching gears slightly, I want to go back to the start and, and talk about your involvement in the open movement more broadly. I'm interested to find out how you were first introduced to open and what tips you have for any folks who are keen to get into your specific area of work. You know, I don't come from a family of activists. Uh, my parents are, uh, are middle class. My father is a research engineer who worked for most of his life with the Indian government. My mother uh, teaches art history and studied to be an artist herself. Wow. I didn't expect to be an activist. I, in fact, thought um, I'd get a job at a bank, which is what I did when I left college. I realized I didn't like it at all. <laughs> and um, I was accidentally almost uh, working in a small West Indian country in Guyana, when I came across this issue of uh, the uh, incredible unaffordability of AIDS drugs. This was a time in about 2000 when AIDS drugs had been on the market for four years. They cost $10,000 a year. And obviously no one in countries that actually had large incidences of mm. HIV could afford that price. Yeah. So nobody could afford it individually, governments couldn't afford it, and people just died. But people were dying of a disease that had a treatment. Mm -hmm. It didn't have a cure, but it had a treatment. Yeah. So literally, this is like people dying of diabetes after the discovery of insulin. It is something that made no sense whatsoever. 
I started getting involved in this issue and then came upon the problem of monopolies, which is how I came to open, uh, primarily from a position of uh, being anti-monopoly. Now, this is something that many of us are instinctively so, and yet patents are legally sanctioned monopolies. Uh, Trade secrets around technology are legally guaranteed monopolies. And so we come into a thorny area where we question the legal underpinnings of these monopolies. Why should they exist if what they do is kill people, which is what they're doing now? So I began to get very interested in the idea of different and alternative models of uh, innovation and pharmaceutical production. And through that, uh, I began to get increasingly interested in the ways in which taking that anti-monopoly lens and looking at other aspects of life uh, produced rich new results. And one of those was around the cost of textbooks in South Africa for learners in school, which were again highly regulated by a clutch of multinational publishers who ensured by their high prices and their monopoly through copyright over their work that uh, very few books could be bought and certainly not enough for the population of South African children who needed to study. I uh, very early uh, joined the advisory board of the Wikimedia Foundation. This was about 2005. Uh, The foundation had just begun and Wikipedia wasn't uh, either what it was today or Mm -hmm. the celebrated thing it became towards the end of the aughts when people stopped mocking it and uh, started recognizing it as Mm -hmm. as uh, one of the the great uh, elements of our age. I spent many years advising the Wikimedia Foundation, which I appreciated. Um, I have some differences with them as well, uh, uh, which I articulated as best as I could and then resigned when I felt they weren't being listened to, which is a a, a Western orientation and a dependence on the sanctity of the peer-reviewed text as opposed to understanding that knowledge is created by people who don't publish books as well, that Mm -hmm. intelligence and knowledge lives in people who have conversations or who come from countries which have predominantly oral cultures. Um, which is something I felt that Wikipedia as an artifact of new knowledge of uh, a 21st century vision of knowledge creation should recognize and enable uh, in the way that the scholarly publishing industry never has and probably never will. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, continued to work on the access to medicines cause as it evolved uh, by 2005 and six, the incredible outcry over the lack of accessibility of AIDS medicines had meant that they were now accessible. The prices had come down, the monopolies had been largely either dismantled or voluntarily disbanded. And it meant that if you had HIV and AIDS anywhere in the world, wherever you lived, you were more or less guaranteed uh, access to treatment and a fulfilling life, which was wonderful. But what it meant was that the monopoly problem Uh, had spread to other new drugs that were coming Mm -hmm. out, like uh, sofosbuvir from Gilead, which was this first ever treatment for hepatitis C, which became uh, an epidemic of almost HIV-like proportions in uh, Latin America and Eastern Europe. Uh, It meant that monopolies started intervening in people's ability to access cancer treatment, especially in countries like India, Uh, but also surprisingly South Africa and the United States even, where the cost of new cancer medications is just something mind boggling. You know, after a certain point, when the medicine you need to live costs more than a couple of hundred thousand dollars, it actually doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousand dollars it is, because that's still more than you have. Um, uh, It became very real for me when I worked on a campaign in the United Kingdom, uh, so that there was me you know, sitting here in Bangalore with my brown face, working with middle-class white parents of children with cystic fibrosis in the United Kingdom in 2019 uh, to try to get them access to a crucial cystic fibrosis drug that would give relief, prolong the lives of their children. Um, The most heartbreaking thing I've ever worked on, I think. Um, And what it underscored for me, I think even before the pandemic began was how radically this focus on monopolies had shifted. What was thought of as a third world problem, because in 2000s, when I started working on this, you know, everyone said, yes, yes, monopolies are a problem, but of course it's only for brown and black people because, you know, we folks are fine. They're working okay here. And they were actually not. And 
we realized that most starkly towards about 2015 and 16 when middle-class white Americans, middle-class white British people suddenly found that they were at the wrong end of the pharmaceutical monopoly industrial complex. It didn't feel good to them and it didn't feel good to me for it to happen to them. But it was also, again, one of these tragic opportunities to turn you know, what was earlier a poor, poor people's problem into, again, a universal global problem. And I worked as hard as I could on these things. And I found that it, it was really a remarkable problem because it just wasn't going away. I'm keen to find out what you think are some of the biggest opportunities for open in India and globally in the near term and the long term. Um, as we drive further into our 20th anniversary campaign, we're looking at the future of open and better sharing. And I'm yeah, keen to find out what's happening on the ground, what we should keep our eyes out for. This is very interesting. I am I am deeply devoted to the cause of Creative Commons as well as deeply invested in trying to expand the view of organizations like Creative Commons and by extension, the Wikimedia Foundation, other projects that were born out of a very real understanding of the limits of closed systems in largely the West. And my my provocation, I think, to the Creative Commons idea of open began really early um, in about 2006 or 2005 even actually. I uh, worked a lot on piracy. And at the time, uh, this was another era, of course. And this was before the Apple smartphone came out. This was before social media. This is before uh, a large amount of the kind of uh, uh, Silicon Valley induced openness that we see today, when access to scholarly texts, access to books was a genuinely huge problem. Uh, and the way that it was solved in countries like India, but not just India, in countries like Nigeria and countries which had a thriving informal economy was through piracy. And I found myself instinctively supporting it, partly because I have been a beneficiary of it. You can go to coffee shops in Bangalore even now where I live and and literally you know point to a book on your syllabus that needs to be photocopied and they'll just bind it up for you and give it to you in in five minutes because it's such uh, an ingrained system of knowledge production and this is in a situation where the books themselves are barely available if they are available there's a foreign edition that costs something an absurd amount an even more absurd amount in 2005 and astonishingly still an absurd amount in 2021 um creative commons is a project that was born out of an understanding of what it was going against which was in its conception a very well funded American publishing company. So uh, let's take the scholarly industrial complex where companies like Reed, Elsevier and others uh, sort of run the show. And it's an excellent response to something like Reed Elsevier, but what it needed to do in order to start off, and I'm not even necessarily sure how much Larry Lessig or any of the other people associated with it believed in, that at the, in this at that point, but what they did, was to very publicly articulate that they were not piracy, that they were against piracy, they thought that was illegal, and that the way to share things was through a proper legal channel like Creative Commons. But having lived in countries where the, the tender and the value of a Creative Commons license is really not the same as it would be in the United States, I, you, I could get, I could see very personally and upfront the limitations of this model as well and uh, the limitations of positioning itself as the legal and the just and moral alternative to something like piracy, which was castigated as wrong and bad and, and criminal. And, and, and so I think my first inkling of what lies to the left and the right of Creative Commons, which is what I want to talk about at the summit, is the fact that there could have been far more an alliance between Creative Commons and pirates instead of looking at pirates as the sort of renegades to Creative Commons's respectability, I think that an, a productive alliance could have created something far more interesting. Uh, 
a recognition uh, that piracy and uh, the the strictly legal route to sharing and open knowledge production are actually two forces working on the same goal would I think have made for a far richer, more global and a more involved conversation because not every single thing in the world is uh, as useful uh, uh, depending on where in the world you are. And so while Creative Commons works very well in countries with the strong arm of the law, um, they are less useful in countries uh, without that. The other really interesting thing, I think, is that there is stuff on the other side of this as well, which is something that came up uh, very recently when I chaired a meeting, um, a small closed meeting uh, with, among other people, the health minister of Cuba. Now, Cuba is a really interesting country. It's uh, small, it's embattled, it's facing uh, completely arbitrary and unjust uh, uh, sanctions that were reinstated uh, by the Trump administration after having been temporarily lifted by the Obama administration on the back of decades of uh, uh, unjust and cruel actions by the United States to limit its ability to, to trade. Cuba in the pandemic developed two vaccines so far, which have shown excellent results. They are based on a technology that's really easy to replicate. And they were willing to share this technology with anyone in the world. And, and it was a remarkable thing because um, no one really knows this. No one's actually uh, tried to do it. Since then, Cuba has set up production facilities in Iran and then more recently in Vietnam. And this is wonderful because it means that people are actually taking up Cuba's offer to share its technology. But what they did say as well is as a country that's facing crippling sanctions, they wanted to have a reasonable royalty rate that they could charge uh, for their vaccine uh, because of the fact, for instance, that they could only do that vaccine research as long as they promised their government that they would not divert any money from the food budget, which is such a heartbreaking thing to hear, right? That in the middle of a pandemic, they could only put their highly skilled trained scientists to work to get a, an effective COVID vaccine on the basis that they promised to scrimp and scrounge and get money from wherever they could, but not from the food budget so that Cubans didn't go without meals in order so that the country could develop a vaccine. And this broke my heart. So what they were saying is that we're absolutely willing to openly license our vaccine. We're asking for a solidarity licensing rate, which is again, mm -hmm. very reasonable because what it you know, entails is Cubans actually helping the manufacturers to produce the Cuban vaccines. So there is an investment that they have to put in uh, to actually get this enabled. And it made me realize that uh, in part, what the Creative Commons licenses are trying to do is to react uh, to the well-funded, big capitalist publisher or pharmaceutical company. The equivalent of the Creative Commons licensing in the pharmaceutical world is something that I was a part of, which is CTAP, which is a, the COVID-19 technology access pool, which is largely led by Western um, anti-monopoly activists, such as by, uh, very similar to the work that I do, who wanted something where technology could be put in into a pool and it would be free and it would be open and anyone could use it anywhere. Um, and it was based upon, again, the kind of uh, industry that Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca dominate, right? Companies that have multi-billion dollar valuations, which have received multi-billion dollar grants from governments to produce these vaccines, you know, which have sales uh, that are larger than the entire GDP of several countries. And so to propose that for them made sense. To propose that model of absolute open sharing free of cost for Cuba did make sense. You needed to have the flexibility to give Cuba what they legitimately deserve in exchange for, again, openly sharing their vaccine technology. And, and that flexibility, again, was a curiously strange point of division where people felt the Cubans were being stingy about this. But having spoken to them, it was extremely clear that their insistence on gaining a fair, what they called, again, solidarity price, uh, which would be a royalty rate per vaccine that would go back to the Cuban government literally to feed its people was absolutely justified. And I think 
that's something that open doesn't sometimes recognize as well, right? Which is the, the, the legitimate right of small creators, whether it's of content or whether it's of uh, uh, life-saving vaccines, to be able to earn, to be able to gain a fair degree of commercial revenue on a product that is valuable is not something I think that easily fits within the open model. And so I see both on the left and the right of openness, I think is the world, which is full of its own peculiarities and complications. And I felt both in 2005 when I worked on piracy and now in 2021 when I work on access to vaccines that it would only benefit a movement like Creative Commons to look to the right and the left and then to find ways to make itself more relevant and useful to the entire world with all its rich complexity, but in a meaningful way that very much would make sense to Creative Commons if it looked. That was a very thought-provoking conversation with Archul. It's given me lots of food for thought. For the final stop on our tour, we're off to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where we'll be catching up with Cecilia Oliveira. Cecilia is Executive Director of Fogo Cruzado, and their goal is to expand a community-driven open data platform and reduce the impact of armed violence to build a more just society. Like Archel, she is also a fellow of the Shuttleworth Foundation. I am Cecilia. I am a Brazilian black lady living in Rio de Janeiro, where we have a, a lot of questions to answer. And here I am to talk with everybody about my work. And come on summit very soon. Awesome, awesome. And I'm curious to learn a bit more about, sorry, I want to get this pronunciation right. So is it Fogo Cruzado? That's perfect. That's perfect. And okay. <laughs> Fogo Cruzado in English means crossfire. So it, it really, it is what it means. So we collect information about crossfires in Rio and Recife. That uh, Recife is a great area of Pernambuco that is a northeastern state in Brazil. How did the motivation come to start the organization? Um, what really drove you? And that is a, a good question because Fogo Cruzado was born out of, I needed I had as a journalist. I was looking for data on victims of stray bullets and shootings in 2015, and I couldn't find it. So I suppose that everybody can remember this because it was great times for Rio. Uh, the World Cup had happened and the Olympics were next year. It was under the international spotlight. But uh, we had questions about security here. Security was getting a lot worse the government had for a few years been running a security policy called Police Specification Units or UPPs, a kind of community policing, policing. But it was just moving crime to different areas and often making, making it worse. So in 2015, mm. it was basically collapsing. And I remember seeing a cover of a newspaper called Voz das Comunidades, Voice of the Community in English, from a famous set of favelas called Complexo do Alemão that had some UPP units. And the headline said, there had been a hundred straight days of shootouts in the favela. And this was, in this was not reported in the big newspapers. So I was wow. looking everywhere for more information, 
But this is the point. There wasn't any. It did not mm-hmm. exist. So there, it it is where Fogo Cruzado uh, begins. And it, it's so clear that Fogo Cruzado was born out of a need for information that you couldn't, you know, access. And, and so you set up the organization yourself and you've achieved so much since launching in 2016. I'm just wondering what's on the cards, um, you know, in the next five to 10 years, what's something that you're hoping to do? Where are you hoping to take the organization? That's a good point because it sometimes it's hard to talk to think and talk about the future when you are mm-hmm. living in a not very bright present times, right? <laughs> so sometimes right. it's it's kind of hard, but it's it's a good question. Uh, for to understand the future, we need to understand the today, we need to understand today. Uh, now, five years later, the beginning, we are an institute, an NGO. And Fogo Cruzado has the only database on armed violence in the country. We have very wow. detailed information about shootings and all their impacts and cities uh, on the cities where we operate. So we keep stats about closed schools, shootings in shopping malls, pregnant, uh, pregnant women and children shot, police involvement, that's a lot of things. And we publish this information in real time so people can stay safe as it happens, but we can also help push for public action, put pressure on the government and politicians and really press for change and accountability. So the government was hiding this information on purpose. So we mm-hmm. do not make the opposition, right? So everything is open source, open use, open, open, it's basically how how we exist. And you can see and use it, and we help journalists and researchers and officials use and understand it too. So for the future, I think that we need uh, to be in more cities to generate more information, to put more data, on the table to pressure more people about this situation. So this is what I think about the future. Do more to help more people to pressure and to stay safe. You mentioned that your involvement in Open really started when um, you were a journalist and looking for open data. I'm just curious to find out, had you been involved in open data prior to starting Fogo Cruzado? Yeah, Uh, when you have no information as a journalist, you have nothing to do sometimes because Mm -hmm. you have no story, you have no information, so you have nothing to pursue uh, in crime and violence and gun trafficking, it's a big issue in Brazil. And of course, they hide this information because if you have no information, you can you, you, you have no tools to pressure for solutions. Mm-hmm. So this is the why I was pursuing information and that that that's also the why I believe that the openness is the key because I cannot be the only one pressured for solutions. We need more people pressuring because when you have more voices, you can pressure better and claim for solutions that really can 
help more than a group that they can privilege. So we need to, we need more people pressuring and showing them that we know what's happening and we don't like it. You need to change. And what would you say to other journalists who, you know, aren't yet leveraging open data sources? That's a great question. Uh, That's a great question because sometimes journalists, uh, they are looking for exclusive information. Mm -hmm. And, And you can have it, of course. But when you have it, you have to share. So an example, it's like when you are covering some situation and you have access to documents, of course you are doing your piece and you are and you will be the first one doing it. But you, if you work, it's published and it's done. There is no reason to keep this document just for yourself. Just share. Just share because mm-hmm. when other people read this information, they can have another insight, they can have other point of view. So it's good for democracy, it's good for journalism, having more people taking look and pursuing more information and publishing more pieces in any subject. When the journalism is strong, the democracy is also strong. So there is no place to to be just the only one. That's so true. When the journalism is strong, the democracy is also strong. Um, And so I I hope that journalists will heed your advice and um, really take action in terms of, you know, sharing more, collaborating more in that regard and, and throwing out different perspectives. And I'm curious to ask, what do you see as the you know, biggest opportunities um, rising up in terms of open data in Brazil at the moment and, and maybe around the region? So here in Brazil, we are facing uh, a, right, a right-wing government. So mm-hmm. one of the things that this kind of government does, it's hide information. They hide what they can, and then they and they also destroy what's done. So it's uh, it's very important that we have very strong uh, civil movements and civil organizations building data, building information to to help us to understand these these times and also for, uh, to fight for justice. So this is the kind of moment that we are living in Brazil. Giving you an example, it's that, of course, we are facing COVID here. Mm-hmm. And this government, they were producing information and releasing the data every day at the 5 p.m. And then they decide that they are releasing at six and then seven and then 8 p.m. And one day they decide that, no, we are not releasing any information about this. So this situation uh, let the journalists like, we, how can we do? How can we mm-hmm. produce information? Because there is no information. So... We had a few data journalists that collect information direct from the cities and built a a national database showing this information. So the government said, "I'm I'm not giving you any, but the civil society said, we are doing this. And this is the information and we are helping the journalists doing what they have to do. So this is the situation and this is a very clear uh, example of the importance of building databases and the open ones because uh, 
if the journalists, if someone do this database and said, oh, you have to pay me for this, there is no, there is no good solution for this, right? Mm -hmm. Because someone with a very, with amount, a very huge amount of money can just pay and say, don't release them, I'm paying you. So it's not about money. It's, it's not about close your database, especially in this moment, in this, uh, we have a, a crisis on politics and on health. So we need to build strong uh, links with society and journalism to build a health, a health environment for us. Now that we've had the chance to get to know Angela, Archel and Cecilia a little better, we're moving on to our last segment of this episode, our quickfire summit round. Question number one. Have you ever been to a CC Global Summit before? This is actually my first time attending and speaking at a... Yeah, it's my first time attending and speaking at a Creative Commons Global Summit. So... It's, it's exciting for me to just, you know, revel in the experience firsthand. I have not, only I've never been to a CC Global Summit. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm glad that we have you this time around and this will be your first one. So I haven't been, but I have, uh, I have read a lot of it about because... I, I couldn't be there in person, but I was following what was happening. Amazing. So three first timers. I'm sure this will be the first time of many. Question number two. As this will be your first time at a CC Global Summit, what are you most looking forward to? I'm also really excited to connect with other community members, just immerse myself in the CC uh, community and see how we can all collectively shape a brighter future with better sharing. Um, It will be very interesting to see what other people's thoughts and ideas are around that. So that that for me is, is, is the thing that I'm really excited about. Oh, I've known and worked alongside Creative Commons for so long, and I felt like both an ally as well as sometimes, as I said, a, a you know a provocateur. That for me to be able to do this and be with you at the CC Global Summit, it really does feel like the circle is is closing in a really good way. I am excited to know more people that are in the field. And at the same time, I'm sad because you cannot see, in fact, people and touch people and have a coffee or a beer talking about this subject that it's very important for, for us. But in other way, uh, you can have more people that maybe could not uh, travel for this, but we'll be able to be there online. So it's very nice to know more people on your field talking with something that, that it's important for you and uh, probably doing the same in, in, in some way, doing the same that you are doing on your country and you can understand how, can, how, they, how they can work on their country the same on the same path. So this is, this is the richest thing that I, I am excited to see at the summit. And last but not least, question number three, our last question. If you could only leave people with one message from your keynote at summit, what would it be? <laughs> oh, I tried with this one. Oh, one thing. Um, there is immense value in making sure that marginalized communities are involved in solving problems around them. And that as we think about better sharing, that has to include thinking about what works best for them. So that it's not just about building things or you know designing things the way that we think, it has to include what works for them. And that will mean talking to them, uh, putting ourselves in their shoes, understanding what their experiences are and what shapes who they are. It would be to think of when Creative Commons came up, what it disrupted, and to consider 
along the years that it's existed and has disrupted what it was designed to disrupt, whether it's doing its job in terms of responding to the world as it's moved and evolved, and whether it's it's disrupting things enough and accurately. So the powerful, high, important data to prevent us from demanding change. This is true with armed violence in Brazil, but it's also true where you live on issues that you care about. So find a way to use open data to make change in your society. Thank you so much for joining us for this special Summit Edition episode. I look forward to seeing you all at Summit. Make sure you're registered and take care. Thanks for listening to Open Minds from Creative Commons. Special thanks to the musician Broke for Free, whose track Daybird you heard at the beginning of this episode and you're listening to right now. It's available under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Meaning it's free for anyone to use. You can find it at the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Please subscribe to our show so you don't miss any of our conversations with people working to make the internet and our global culture more open and collaborative. We'll be back soon with another episode. Talk to you then.